you're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. A long, long, long time ago, a man wrote a poem, a very famous poem. You've probably uh, not heard of it. He lived at the same time as Homer. That's a long time ago. It's the 8th century BC. And this poem, long poem, is called Works and Days. The name of the poet, a contemporary of Homer, actually, I don't want to spoil the story by telling you that we're not really sure whether Homer ever lived or whether he was just a collection of poets and his great poet uh, poems, his two great poems, um, uh, evolved over centuries as they were performed and retold and retold and retold. But we do know that the other poet, the one I'm t- telling you about, did live. His name was Hesiod. Hesiod, an 8th century Greek poet who wrote this huge work, various works, but one works and days. And you've heard of Hesiod's work, even though at this moment you probably don't realise that you have. When we say in English, that's opened a can of worms, in actual fact, it's a reference back to what Hesiod wrote about. I was just asking some members of Ben's choir, who were wonderful, weren't they? I mean, not only was the choir wonderful, but Ben was wonderful. How do you do all that, jumping up and down in time? I mean, this is a... (laughs) In perfect time, this is a gift I do not have and will never possess, even though I practice, which I'm not going to, every day, <laughs> every day of my life. Um, I wonder if you, um, you could switch across to uh, my iPad, that would be great. So, you've heard about Hesiod because of Pandora. Uh, Pandora was checking out with the choir um, I was just checking I got this right. Pandora is a make of jewellery, isn't it? A jewellery, isn't it? Bracelets and things like that. So, you know, perhaps some of you hang around in... Is, has, does Pandora have shops or just do it online? Yeah, perhaps some of you hang around in Pandora for a lot of the time. I must confess to never having been myself. But we would not have Pandora without uh, Hesiod. Hesiod wrote the story of Pandora's box... Pandora's box, of course, if you open a Pandora's box, in our understanding, it's opening a can of worms. Pandora's box is opening a box with all sorts of bad things in it. He really opened a Pandora's box when he said that. She really opened a Pandora's box when she introduced this subject. Pandora's box is a box full of evils and problems. Now, the story that Hesiod tells us is simply this that Zeus, the great king of all the Greek gods in Greek mythology, was angry. And he was angry because one of his uh, brothers had given to humanity, to us, the gift of fire. Some of you did uh, classics or whatever at school, went to the kind of school that did that kind of stuff, and perhaps you'll know this kind of story. Anyway, Zeus, the god of power, is really mad with one of his siblings because he has given to humanity the gift of fire. And the gift of fire makes humanity strong. And um, Zeus doesn't like that. So Zeus takes his revenge. And what he does is he goes to see one of his queens. 
And together they create Pandora. This is Pandora. And Pandora is beautiful. She's charming. She's irresistible. Everyone is drawn to her. But she has a heart that's cold. And she's given by Zeus a box. And she's told by Zeus that on his order, she must open the box. And so that's how we get to the phrase, opening a Pandora's box. And when Pandora opens her box, all of the evils contained in the box are spewed out across the world. And that's why we're in the state we're in. Now, another little aside for those of you who care about these kind of things. Um, actually, though we call it Pandora's box, it's a mistranslation of a Greek word. And actually, Pandora had a jar. Anyway, I've said that. Kind of like that. I, I was sat there and I thought, shall I tell you these kind of things? And shall I tell, shall I tell you that Homer probably, well, we're not sure whether it existed because I realised that and this about the jar and the box are a bit kind of, but I've got that kind of brain and I was trying, like yesterday I came to the day and I was given through um, what went on a bit of a better understanding of the way my brain works and I just have to do those little bits which I realise everybody else finds boring. So back to Pandora's box and not Pandora's jar although it was one. Anyway, yeah, and it was one of those Greek jars. Do you know the big Greek jars? Yeah, anyway, anyway, it's only a myth anyway. But in this... <laughs> in this box, you might think, what's this got to do with the, do with the day of Pentecost and what they've said I'll be speaking about? And the answer is everything, believe it or not. But we'll have to get there. So uh, <laughs> we'll have to get there. So in Pandora's box, uh, spewed out on the world by order of Zeus are all of these evils. These are them. Suffering, anger, hatred, disease, illness, pestilence, uh, torment, and death. But there's one more evil that is kept in the box. And if you read that great poem, what happens is... Zeus gives the order, Pandora opens the box, and out come all of these evils onto humanity for Zeus to get his revenge. And then, on Zeus's order, Pandora shuts the box and shuts hope inside. Hope never gets to leave the box. And those of you who study kind of different things in life, some of you think, cool, blow, I don't study any of these things. Don't worry, it's kind of for sad people. But um, those of you who study different things in life will know that what's happened ever since that day back in the 8th century BC is there's been an ongoing debate about why hope was left in the jar, why hope was left in the box. And uh, all sorts of people have joined in with this uh, debate down through the ages. Um, Hesiod himself said that hope was left in the jar. He, so this is his commentary on what he said. He said that in the story, hope is left in the jar and all these evils are spewed out across the world is because the fine bit, because Zeus knew 
that the final way of defeating humanity, of keeping humanity in their place, was to offer them something that they could never have. You offered hope as though it was a great gift, but you kept it in the jar. And because it was kept in the jar, it became a great evil. Because, as Hesiod uh, himself says, this is his commentary on it, hope makes humanity lazy. Hope deprives humanity of their industriousness. Instead of working, we sit back and are lazy and we just hope it will all turn out all all right in the end. Hope makes people non-active. Hope glues people to the couch, he would have said if he was living in the 21st century. Hope makes people sit down and wait for someone else to deliver and do it. So hope is actually the greatest evil. And Zeus's genius was to leave hope in the jar. So it's always there, but it's never available. And we live our whole lives longing for something and waiting for something and relaxing. But it's never going to happen simply because hope is in the jar. And it's made us lazy. And like I said, it's an ongoing debate. So along comes Plato. Do you know one of these Socrates, uh, Plato, Aristotle, you know, these three teacher, student, teacher, student, you know, uh, in Greece. And Plato uh, talks about hope. And Plato says that hope is in vain. And Plato says hope is for the uneducated. Now, you know that Greek culture was all about self-mastery. And so hope was seen as this terrible thing by Plato because the uneducated believe in hope and it just keeps them wallowing in their poverty. If they could get over yearning for this thing that's beyond them and actually get themselves out of bed and do some work, then life would be different but they sit there in their uneducated fashion longing for this thing which just is never going to satisfy and is is going to drain away. Aristotle, who, like I just said, was um, uh, Plato's most famous student, Aristotle, he kind of moves the story on on, on a little bit and for him, he has some virtues, you know, Another little side. That's why Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit, and he has nine fruit fruit of the Spirit. He has nine fruit of the Spirit because Aristotle had nine virtues. It was Aristotle who came up with the idea of virtues. But the problem was that Aristotle's virtues were all about self-mastery, whereas Paul rewrites it, and he says, no, it's about love, and it's about dependence and reliance on God, and it's about living out the life of God. Aristotle is the biggest unseen um, author of the New Testament, without doubt. In other words, so much of what Paul writes is, is written against the backdrop. You know, Paul's Old Testament, as a, well, he was a Hebrew and he thought in Hebrew ways, but the bit of him that was a Greek, if you like, the Greek Old Testament was Homer and the Greek New Testament was Aristotle. So everybody lived in that air. Do you, do you see what I mean? And so, so Paul, he takes Aristotle's self-mastery virtues and he rewrites them and he calls them the fruit of the spirit. Rewrites them completely. It's genius. Absolute genius. By the way, um, uh, 
why am I talking about yeah, I hope you do come to the launch of my book, which is called The Lost Message of Paul on Thursday. We're going to do a glass of wine for everyone, which you can pay for, but that paying for, then I'm going to match the money, and then we can put all that money into our thing, which Danielle was explaining to us through, through the week. But if you can get along at 6.45, you see, um, the point is this. I, this is a little aside again. <laughs> At this little aside again. But I've, I spent, on the front of the news sheet, it says I spent two years writing this book. I spent a lot more. I spent one and a half years just reading uh, theologians um, in order to write this because it, it, it's the best I can do. It might be rubbish, but it's, uh, it's the best I can do. It is a thoroughgoing theology of inclusion, of why we are all in. That's what I loved about that podcast. Wasn't it wonderful that Peter made that with the children and with some of you? It's, it's about belonging, being in, being accepted, being loved, being celebrated. So I've written a theology of Paul and take on lots of uh, theologies and lots of living as well as dead theologians. I've written to them to tell them I disagree with them and I've called everybody to a public debate about the nature of what Christianity actually is, which I think we need. We need a revolution. So, um, so that's what that book is. And this bit that I'm saying, why did I tell you all that? Only to say that this bit about Hesiod and all that, I'm going to talk about Paul in a minute, isn't in the book. Because I, I researched a lot more than I eventually put in the book. So um, anyway, there's Hesiod. And we're going to get to Paul in the end, and we're going to get to Pentecost, and I promise it won't be long. Um, <laughs> I promise it, it, it won't be long. So, so Aristotle, he reckons that, that courage is a virtue, and he reckons that hope is a problem, because you have more courage if you face up to what you're facing instead of have a vague hope because your vague hope, if you go onto the football field with the real hope that you're easily going to win, you probably won't win. You've got to have fear. Fear really helps propel you and creates that real courage that drives you forward. And so Aristotle again says, hope is terrible. Zeus put it in the box and he left it there and the whole of humanity is lazy and wasted. Coming endless centuries further forward, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche writes about all of this and he writes about Pandora's box and he says hope's a deception. You look at the masses of the people everywhere. Hope is the deception that keeps them put that is this story. So it's incredible that we come on to what Paul says in that um, uh, chapter, that wonderful poem again that Gio read to us. Paul says this, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What Paul is saying is, hope's got out of the jar. Hope's got out of the box. The hope that was locked away from humanity, the hope that Zeus locked away from humanity, the hope that the Greek myths tells us has been shut up from humanity, 
is out of the jar and into our world. Hope has been born and his name is Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the whole earth, the Lord of the whole earth, the hope of all humanity. Hope is real. It's a total turnaround. The Greeks believed, you probably know this, that history was circular. It just went around and around. The Chinese still believe this, which is why you get the year of the cat and the year of the dog and the year of the lion, etc., etc. History is circular. Generation by generation, we just go round and round and round. But the Hebrews, I don't even know this, it was the Hebrews that introduced the thought through the story of the Exodus, that history wasn't circular, that it went somewhere, that it was linear. It was the first time that the concept of linear history, progression, going somewhere with direction and a goal and an end and an outcome was ever introduced to the world. And of course that spread across the world now. And the story that he the Hebrews believe is that life wasn't circular. They wouldn't be caught in Egypt as slaves forever and ever and ever and ever. There was coming a Messiah who would set them free and there would be a trajectory through history because of a promise that had been given long before that to a guy called Abraham that in the end God would redeem all people that the God of creation and the God of the universe is the God of love who's on the side of everyone. We talk about the the people of Israel as the chosen people of God, don't we? That they were the chosen people of God. I think if you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible a little bit closer, you'll discover of course they were chosen. It was just that they finally woke up to the fact that they were chosen. Everyone is chosen. God has chosen humanity and the story of the Bible is the story of redemption and salvation and the salvation is the rescue that comes to people when they wake up to the fact that instead of living in their little story, we live in God's big story and it's a story with direction and hope, a direction and hope for us all. Now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. I don't want to talk for too long, and I don't want to go off onto another side point. So why does Paul put faith first? I don't think faith means faith at all. It means faithfulness, but you'll have to read my books to find out about that. And what, you live in faithfulness because you live with real hope out of the box, on earth, in your life, right here and right now. And this is all based on the love of God that everyone now understands, not just the Hebrews. And that's why the greatest of these is love. That, I believe, is how the whole thing fits together. And of course, all of this ties up with the story of Pentecost. There you are. Told you we'd get to Pentecost. Because when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, which we're celebrating today around uh, the world, the story of the birth of the church, the beginning of the church, when God's spirit is poured out on all people. Um, There's a lot of kerfuffle in Jerusalem where this event happens. If you've not read about it, you can read about it all in Acts chapter 2. And Peter stands up to explain what's happening, Peter being one of the followers of Jesus. And he stands up and this is what he says, quoting from an old Hebrew prophet called Joel. And he says, in the last days, last days now, you know, not some time in the future, Peter thinks the last days are here. 
now. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on, what's it say? All people, not some people, not men and not women, not straight people and not gay people, not white people and not black people, not old people and not young people. On all people, everybody is in. This is the revolution which Paul having discovered eventually that Jesus is the Messiah, comes to understand for himself. Hope is out of Pandora's box. Hope is born. Hope is real. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men. You see, it's, the, it's, it's both genders. It is male and female, it is old and young, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It's a shame that it's taken some sections of the church 2,000 years to get to understand that and some sections still don't understand that. But this is Christianity, this is the gospel. It's not part of it. It's not a subset. It's not something you might get round to. This hope is real right here and now. And then there was a tragedy because people kept talking about hope. And Augustine came along, St. Augustine as we call him, Augustine of Hippo, who was, you know, famous, famous bishop in the church, a Latin-speaking bishop, and he was in the Roman Empire, which was the kind of Latin half of the church. I'm sorry if that's all a bit confusing for some people. It's all in my book in a bit more plainness. And uh, <laughs> all of these things are not in my book, though. So what happens is Augustine comes along and... and um, you see, the thing, before this guy Augustine, that some, somebody joked, a famous Oxford scholar, and he said, he said, Augustine took the worst of St. Paul. Uh, actually, I don't think there is anything bad in, in Paul, but he, uh, this famous Oxford professor said, Augustine took the worst of St. Paul. Then Calvin took the worst of Augustine, and that's what we've ended up as, with as Christianity. And there's a huge amount of truth in that. There really is. Because what Augustine did was he rewrote Christian theology to suit the Roman Empire, the seat of power. And, um, but before he became a Christian, he lived a pretty kind of wayward life. I don't even know. He wrote a book, his first book. It's called The Confessions of St. Augustine. You can get it online. It's, and it's a bit like the confessions of a window cleaner. You know, it's kind of, oh, you know, not picking on window cleaners, but there was a film... <laughs> There was a film called The Confessions of a Window Cleaner, I remember from my youth, which my mum, <laughs> which my mother wouldn't have liked me watching. But anyway, <laughs> anyway Augustine, he had, uh, Augustine has an affair for 13 years and he has a child by this woman, but he doesn't really, well, he loves her in the end. He's, she's a prostitute to begin with. This is true. This is his story. She's a prostitute to begin with. He takes this prostitute and he falls in love and they have a child and they live together 13 years. But Augustine's mother is a really driven woman and she says to him, you, you can achieve high things and you never achieve high things if you stay with that woman because you've got to marry into a wealthy family. Because if you marry 
marry into a wealthy family, get a good pride with a lot of, with a dad, with a lot, a lot of dosh, and then you can get on. So he leaves his mistress, and he leaves the child, and he marries this woman who's got a ton of money because of her dad, and he rises to power, and he becomes a senior official in the Roman Empire, and then he becomes a Christian, and then he writes the Confessions of St. Augustine. But on his journey, he becomes part of, for a sect, uh, uh, for a long time, called the Mancunians. And the Mancunians believe, this is before he's a Christian, they believe that everything that is spiritual is up there and pure, and everything that's down on earth is terrible, awful. And the whole point of life it's, it's, uh, is to escape hu- your humanity and be reunited with God. Everything about me that is flesh is ugh, yuck. And everything that's spiritual is above that. It's a huge dichotomy. Do you, do you get that? And so, he, so even though he becomes a Christian, he, he carries on that bit of thinking. And so what happens to him is, is, is this. He spiritualizes redemption. So what do you believe? You believe that one day you'll escape this old earth and you go to heaven and everything will be wonderful. Yeah? That's what people, they've died, but they've gone to the good place where it's all going to be wonderful. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's what St. Augustine taught. What Paul taught was hope comes here on earth right now. I know you. You know I love you. I know some of your stories. You need hope here, not pie in the sky when you've snuffed it. You need hope here and now. We need hope tomorrow morning, hope on the streets, hope in our schools, hope in our employment and housing and family life, hope for our children, hope for our grandchildren, hope for our neighbours and our friends and in our marriages and in our relationships. We need to be rid of those stories that have robbed us, those stories that have told us that we don't matter, that we're inferior, that we're not as good as other people. We need to be set free of those stories that are filled with pain and filled with shame and filled with rejection, memories of abuse that inhibit us but have shaped us and stunted us. And it was brilliant. Those of you who were here yesterday, well, the whole day was brilliant, but Camilla Batmangela was here, and it wasn't it brilliant? As, as Camilla explained to us how that works and how our brains work and how the limbic system of our brain harbors, well, crunches up and memorizes these painful episodes, and then they come, if we're not careful, to control us. And then she talked about our prefrontal lobe, our prefrontal system, which is like the executive management center of the brain. But it can be overridden by the bad stories that we can't be set free of. She was great, wasn't she, Camilla? She gets this, she understands this in depth. Well, do you know that's the basis of all our education in Oasis? I don't know if you know that. That's what we do all the time. We understand that. It's no good punishing the kid. You love the kid because love changes everything, as says, says Paul. Love, that's what melts even the most broken story, isn't it? The broken story of your life isn't melted by being punished for it. So why do we punish people when they've got a broken story? Love, people. It's love that burns away abuse. It's love and acceptance that burns away all of those bad stories that inhibit us. So that's why Paul says, faith, hope has come. It's here. 
It's out of Pandora's box. It's not empty anymore. It's real. It's for you here. Well, I'm going to stop by telling you a story. Um, do you know that this last week, you can't have missed it um, because of um, uh, uh, the visit of Donald Trump, etc., 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 even if for no other reason, but it, it, it was D-Day. Uh, June the 6th, uh, 1944, D-Day, and off went um, Teresa and Donald and other world leaders uh, to those beaches, and I'm sure that you would have read about and seen those stories of uh, D-Day uh, from, those, uh, from those beaches. I don't know if you know this, and it wasn't said. It always amazes me that it, it doesn't get said. You know, we went to free France. The Allies went to free France from the Axis powers, from Hitler and the Axis powers. And so we landed on those five beaches and then there was that huge push to free France. But what's often not said is that um, until just two years beforehand, this happened in 44, until 42, 1942, there was a whole section of France that was free. So it's not true that the Germans um, took over France. Um, what actually happened, it's more complicated than some of you historians, and if you're a historian, forgive me for saying this quickly, and you'll want to say, but Steve, you never mentioned this, and you didn't mention that. But what actually happened to France was it was invaded, and the French government did a deal with the German, uh, with the Nazis, and northern France came under the control of the Germans, and southern France remained free. And it remained free until 1942 when the Allies in, uh, invaded parts of Africa and then Germany took over control in the south of France. So that's what France looked like. The light green bit at the top was the bit that the Germans took control of. The south of France, and you see that, that city, Vinci, um, that south of France, the whole of the south of France, uh, uh, Marseille, Cannes, etc., etc., all of that remained free. It was called Free France. And it had its government, which was called the Vinci government, in the town of Vinci. And uh, it truly was uh, free as long as it stayed out of the way. And that border that you can see there was patrolled by the Germans until 42. After 1942, and the Allies in, invaded across the Mediterranean, then, then Germany swept in and con took control of everything. The French government stayed in place, but they became a puppet government after that. But on that border, there were lots of towns. And, off, and, and when a border's set up, you'll know, often half a town is in, in one area, and the other half of the town is in the other area. And so there's this particular village, true story, particular village where the church was in occupied France, the top half of France, annexed to Germany. And the graveyard was in free France. So the church building is in occupied territory and the graveyard just down the road is in free France. And in the early years of the war, 39, 40, 41, the idea was to smuggle people who were part of the French resistance 
across the border and others who needed to get out, out. And what happened, this became really famous, is that in this village, they used to, so there are lots of guards guarding the border, German guards guarding the border, but the church is in occupied France. And so the church developed this way of holding funerals. And uh, what would happen is people in the village, um, people who'd come to the village to visit the relatives, would regularly die. And then the church would put them into a coffin and the village would turn out to mourn the person who died and they'd hold a fu- full funeral service and then they'd carry the coffin from the church, yeah, church which was in occupied France down the street into free France and then they'd uh, lower the coffin into um, a deep hole and they throw a little bit of earth on top and all go home and that night the person in the coffin simply opened the lid and escaped and they did this tightly hundreds of times and it was really it's really a fantastic illustration of someone passing from death <laughs> to genuine freedom And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Hesiod is wrong. Hope isn't in the jar, in the box. Hope is out. Hope is Jesus. And Jesus brings hope to my life, to your life, right here, right now. We pass from occupied territory through death into life, into freedom. That's who we are. That's what we're about. That's why we're going to have lunch across on the farm. And that's why we're all going to commission ourselves inside our stories to be part of this revolutionary group of people that brings hope and knows hope everywhere we are. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org.